This is the day the Lord hath made. We will do what? And be glad in it. It's a joy for us to be able to share with you. And I'm so thankful that you as a fellowship, body of believers, our pastor, pastoral staff, and deacons, that uh, you take time at the beginning of each fall to be able to acknowledge what God is doing uh, just about 50 yards from here in a building, and yet really not in a building, but through lives as they are uh, pressed on with the word and teachers as they teach and, and uh, fellowship as it takes place and the whole learning, fellowship of learning just composes for us a, a very exciting time as um, we think about uh, VBTS. And so I hope that uh, you as uh, brothers and sisters, you'll just continue praying for us that God's will would be greatly accomplished and that uh, his name would be uplifted. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke in chapter 11? When I was thinking about what I should share with you this morning, I thought that the, the most important thing I could share is what God is doing in my own personal life and how he is shaping me in these last three years to see how he has worked in the church and has strengthened the church and has brought to us uh, several years ago just a tremendous pastor to be under, to learn from, to be a part of uh, his life and so grateful for what God is doing. But these have been three challenging years, uh, to say the least. And when you think of being in different churches constantly, uh, rubbing shoulders with prospective students, asking God to bring in finances, watching the Lord work in lives, and challenges come, difficulties come, unexpected turns take place. Um, it, it, is, it is quite different than a local church. And so God has been very gracious, I believe, in, in helping us as a seminary to grow and to develop and to stabilize. I'm very grateful for our board. We have a very strong group of men that are committed to the text of Scripture and to see the future pastors and missionaries come out of here and to be able to one day encircle the globe. At this point, this is our 24th year, and we are in 33 states, but only 25 of those states we have pastors in. So in those 25 states and then 11 foreign countries uh, at this particular moment, we're just very grateful to the Lord for what he's done. So continue praying for us. I, I trust that uh, this will encourage you because this is how God is dealing with me. So in honor of the text of Scripture, would you please stand with me as I read to you Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You got that? And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? And we'll go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on the, a long journey and I have nothing to set before him. Watch verse 7. And the friend will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his shameless persistence, 
He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, it will be given. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it will be open. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a, a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Father, we stand in your presence and we have just a few moments to share what is taking place in our life, in the life of the seminary, in our church life, Thank you so much for the emphasis over the past month on Wednesday evenings on, the, on corporate prayer. It's been challenging, been convicting, been a blessing. Thank you for what we've heard from so many of our brothers as they have shared with us concerning prayer. So I pray, Lord, that as we would think about these few texts together, that you would point us in a proper direction, that your name would be lifted up, that the Spirit would gather his saints together to be a dynamic army of prayer warriors. We, there's not a lot of things that we can do in this world. We're not politicians. We're not bankers. We're not lawyers. We're not known in our community by our name. But Lord, when we band together, we speak to the Most High God. And we can intercede to the Most High God. And you ask us to ask. You ask us to seek. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to do this. And so thank you for these few moments. May your spirit teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you the question, what is the most urgent need in the church, I wonder what your answer would be, especially if this text was not written or not read as it's been written just a few moments ago, maybe your mind would be in other locations. Maybe you would say the urgent need would be something like moral purity, uh, integrity. Just recently, Christianity Today came out with an incredible art article as it it basically surveyed 3,000 church members and of the church members 432 pastors and 338 youth pastors so 770 pastors and out of the 770 pastors six of ten were struggling with pornography maybe others would say just having a defining purpose maybe that's what's at issue you know to really know who we serve, and then we actually not only sing about it, but we actually do it. But what are we really doing? What are we really following? Many in the Western world, it's the God of mammon. Then there, there are others who would say, I know, I think the greatest need is evangelism. And yet most statistics will tell us that if you're an evangelical, basically you share your faith once a year. What would you put there? What would you say was the most urgent need in the church today. I don't know if I can answer that for you 
But I can say this, I want to suggest for you that the most urgent need is I understand it in my own personal life and the life of the ministry that God has us here. I think the most urgent need for us is a spiritual reformation of prayer. We need a spiritual reformation. I think of the incredible writings of D.A. Carson in the book that relates to Paul's prayers. And he makes this statement, and I think you see this here, we're better at organizing We're better at administrating. We're better at theological talk than we are really in talking with God and in prayer. I think if you want to just take your own personal test, and this is not a this is not for guilt, this is to stimulate us from and but I would say if we just look in how much we prayed this morning or how much we prayed yesterday or what time we spent with God over the last five days, maybe that would be a a revelator for us as we think about this urgent need of the church to pray. So Jesus did teach his disciples. And what I would like to do is I'd like to just look very briefly with you through this text and just call your attention to some ideas, and the Lord will just take these ideas, hopefully, and and shape them for you as you think of your own prayer life. But he begins, first of all, in 11.1 with an amazing statement that Jesus is praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist also taught his disciples. When I look at this particular text, I'm, I'm aware that each of the gospel writers has a theological point that he is trying to push for the reader to understand about Jesus Christ. And for Dr. Luke, he, he gives certain aspects of Jesus' life that seem to explode as we read through the text about the greatness of Christ and that we are to imitate and to follow him. And one of those is prayer. I was just thinking about the way Luke lays out prayer. Luke begins his book with prayer, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he ends his book with prayer with the two guys walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus prays with them, and their eyes were open. So Luke begins, and he ends with prayer. And punctuated throughout the entire gospel, you will find prayer by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Luke is the only one that shows Jesus, chapter 3, verse number 21, when John the Baptist was baptizing, Jesus went down to be baptized, and as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended. Only Luke brings that particular point out. Chapter 5, verse 16, and Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Chapter 6, verse number 12, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountains to pray. All night, he continued in prayer to God. Chapter 9, verse number 18. Now it happened as Jesus was praying alone. What a statement. Verse number 28. Now about eight days later after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And two men came and began talking with him, Moses and Elijah. See, Luke is the only one that gives to us this context that in the prayer life of Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration took place. So then when you move to chapter 10... In chapter 10, you actually have a prayer of Jesus. When the 70 come back and rejoicing of of all the things they were able to do, they said, even the demons are subject to our name, to your name. And, And Jesus says, hey, don't rejoice in this. 
Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And in verse 21, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And it gives the details of his prayer. So in chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus has been modeling prayer alone, privately. The disciples have been watching him. And now in chapter 11, we find verse 1, one of the disciples gets the courage to be able to come directly to Jesus. And we don't know which one, but one came and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Can I say to you, men and women, that prayer is not something of habit. It is a learned quality. It is something that is developed within our lives. And this request makes it very clear. I mean, these guys had, had, had done all kinds of things, casting out demons, doing all kinds of things in ministry, but they have yet learned to pray. And they notice a significant ingredient in the life of Jesus Christ. And that ingredient is this, that he did all of these things. He was an amazing God-man, but something about the God-man is he spent time alone with his father. I mean, if we had to pray for five minutes, could we do it? All night, alone, in a certain place, 11-1. Here he is praying. This is, brothers and sisters, this is what God is teaching me. This is what God is. He's, first of all, he reveals my cavity. And then the next thing he does, he takes me to the scriptures. And then from the scriptures, I begin to learn exactly what it really means to pray. You say, well, wait a second, have you been in, in ministry for a while? Yeah, for a while. But let me tell you something. I need to be taught to pray. I need the, that, but the scriptures to be able to shape my words and my thinking so that I can pray and talk with my heavenly father. Basically, what Jesus does here in verse 2 and 4 is he does two things. He says to the disciples, okay, you want to learn how to pray? Then number one, you've got to learn how to talk, how to address God. And then number two, you need to know what to pray for. Those are the two things that Jesus gives to us here. He needs, you, it's a pattern. It's, it's not that we repeat the words because they're different in Matthew 6 given there in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not the, the actual words as much as it is a pattern. And so in this pattern, he, he wants his disciples to come in contact with this. Okay, what, how do I address God? I mean, do I just bust into heaven and say, God, here I am again? I mean, how do I do this? And I love the way it's laid out in the text from Jesus' own lips in 11.2 where he says this, begin this way, Father. You see, this is the foundational statement, men and women, for our prayer life, Father. In other words, when you look at this particular word, this is a question that only you can answer. Is God your Father? There's a relationship that's taking place here. And, and when I think of this, I can't help but think of the New Testament theology that just basically fills this with incredible data. And Paul does this in Galatians in chapter 4 and verse 4 to 6 where he talks about that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem man, to adopt them as sons. And as sons... He dispatched his Holy Spirit into your heart so that you cry out, Abba, Father. See, our old father, 
John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil. He's a liar, a murderer from the beginning. That's your old father. Your new father, the spirit has been dispatched by the heavenly father into you so that you might be able to speak to the heavenly father. In fact, it's so difficult to pray that Paul writes in Romans 8 these words. He says, we don't know how to pray as we ought because of our weakness of our flesh. We don't know how to pray. So the Spirit, who knows the mind of the Father, and the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, comes alongside of us and articulates the words that need to be said so that we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We love Romans 8, 28, but that's predicated upon the foundation of prayer through the Spirit working through us so that we know All things are working together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to the Spirit. So when I take Romans 8, 28, don't forget 26 and 27. So when I see the word Father, there's there's so much that goes into this particular statement. It's It's a term of tenderness. It's a term of sweetness. It's a term of relationship. It's a term of significance in our prayer. Begin this way, Father. And this is how you address him, holy is your name. This is how you address the Father. This sets the entire tone of your prayer. Whatever your prayer is, the tone is set by this idea. Holy is your name. This is significant. It is not, God, I'm going to make your name holy by what I say. No. But God, my prayer needs to reflect that you are holy. So that's going to change the way that I enter this this prayer time, this speaking time to the Father, because he is my Father, but I know that he is holy. I know the seraphim are flying around, it says in Isaiah 6, saying, holy, 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 I know that. And so I do not in anything I say want to bring God down from his throne. I want you to stay there. So God, holy, holy is your name. And then the expectation is amazing that's that's stated here. The expectation is this, your kingdom come. Whenever I hear the word kingdom, immediately my mind runs to Daniel in chapter 2, which is the beginning and the start of the times of the Gentiles. In Daniel chapter 2, you have King Nebuchadnezzar, and he has this incredible dream, and you know the dream of this image, and all the different kinds and various metals, and then out without hands, this stone is carved and come and smashes the image, and the image becomes like chaff and blows away, and it's no longer there, and upon this earth, you see this stone grow, and it becomes a kingdom, and then chapter 7 says the Son of Man is going to be the ruler of the kingdom. Only time the word Son of Man is used for Messiah in the Old Testament, which Jesus used over and over and over and over again to identify himself. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. I am the receptor of all of that in Daniel chapter 7. So when I think of your kingdom, I'm saying this, that when I enter my prayer, number one, God, I don't want to take you off your throne. And number two, my highest expectation is your kingdom come. That's my highest expectation. It's not that my car gets fixed. It's not that I get the job. That's not my highest expectation. My highest expectation is, Lord, you remain holy by what I say. And I'm asking you, Lord, that you cause your will to be done on earth, Matthew 6 as it is in heaven. 
This is significant, my brothers and sisters. This is, this is the pattern. This is the way that it works itself through. But as I look at this in front of me in chapter 11, he doesn't stop there. He, he says, here are, here are some, here are two different concepts, three different concepts and, and as you pray. And maybe, maybe this can help you somewhat. You know, I've, I've often thought of this. What would it be like to be able to watch Jesus pray? What would it have been like to stand aside and to see him pray? Only Luke gives us an amazing context for this. And I want you to hear these words. This is, Jesus is praying, and this, what takes place, as it says in Luke, is that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. In agony, he prayed. So I think of the way the, the one picture in the prayer life of Jesus, which is near the end of his life, it was not a glib, kind of just running prayer, or I often call our little napkin prayers that when we go out to a restaurant, we drop our napkin, Lord, thank you for this food in Jesus' name, amen. When I look at what is here before us, this is what the Savior is saying. Now, prayer, like, you know, with all revelation, is progressive. And so with all revelation, these things here in the gospel will be filled out in the letters in a powerful way. But just take the structure that is here and the pattern that is here, and it, and it speaks to you. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, just think about that particular term. Give us our daily bread. I mean, life is hard. But how do, But most of us have a refrigerator, and most of us have a freezer. So we just go home. Today, you're going to go home. You can open up a refrigerator, and there it is. You know, you got your iced tea. You got whatever you want. You open your freezer, and there it is. You've got stuff that's been in there for a long time. You've forgotten about it. We have to go and clean this out. Oh, I forgot. That was there. How do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Unless we have a mindset that comes to our Father, and as we come to our Father, we're coming to Him and we're saying to Him, Father, at the very core of my coming to you, I want to be able to come and speak of my daily provision. I know this has been given to me, but I want you to root out self sufficiency. I want every day to start this way. God, I need you. God, I cannot eat a meal unless I know you're here. God, I cannot go to work unless your presence is with me. God, I cannot clean this house unless your presence is with me. God, I cannot orchestrate family matters unless your presence is with me. This is what he means. When I think of one of the most amazing statements for me personally on Food. I can't help but think of this passage all the way in Deuteronomy in chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses says this, Be careful to do everything that you were commanded. And remember the whole way that God led you. Verse 3, He humbled you and let you be hungry. And then he fed you with manna, which you had no knowledge of, nor did your forefathers. I mean, this was something brand new. Out of nowhere from the sky, bread comes. Why? That he might make you know 
that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word, every utterance that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Peter Craigie is one, Craigie is one of my favorite commentators, and he has written one in Deuteronomy. Can I just have the liberty to read this to you, what he wrote? When the people were hungry, God fed them manna. The provision of manna was not simply a miracle. It was, de- it was designed to teach the Israelites a fundamental principle of their existence. The basic source of life was God and his words to his people. Complete dependence on the word of God and on God's ability to provide is always a hard lesson for man to learn, whether in ancient times or modern, end quote. I mean, what Jesus is doing, I think, is causing a picture to frame in your mind when he talks about here in Luke in chapter 11 to his disciples. Okay, you'll daily bread. <laughs> you think you have a good? Well, listen, you know, Jesus just broke bread and fed 5,000. I mean, the disciples know he, he, can, he can do whatever he wants. I don't need a refrigerator. I just say, hey, Lord, we're hungry. But there is a point a fundamental principle of existence, and that is this. I need God now. I need him in every aspect of my life, and I begin my day. God, you are holy. God, I want your will on earth as it will be done when your kingdom comes. And Lord, I want you to know that everything about this day, from the very bread I eat until I sleep at night and lay in that bed, God, you control everything I do. See, it roots out self-sufficiency. It also, interesting, he says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Wow. Forgive us our sins? As we are going to have a heart of humility, awareness of those who sin against us? I mean, how are you with forgiveness? How am I with forgiveness? Just think of these words. The right to ask our Father to forgive us assumes we are aware of how gentle we need to be with other people. The right that we have to ask our Father to forgive us assumes that we are aware of how gentle we need to be with brothers and sisters. Can you imagine saying, if, if the person sitting next to you knew what you said about them this week? But see, God does. God hears. Words matter. When I look at this, forgive us our sins, the unforgiving heart is not in a proper place for the blessing of God. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And then he ends up with one more, lead us not into temptation. I'd love to park here for a moment. I won't. But I would say this, when this particular statement just absolutely captures me, I I am speaking to the Lord, and as I speak to the Lord, Lord, my propensity is 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 to wander. My propensity in my flesh is to do that which is opposite, which I know to be true. 
And so he says, now, this is what I'm asking, Lord. I'm asking that you, you will direct my way, and I want my way directed this way because I'm highly susceptible to seduction. I'm highly susceptible to feeling sorry for myself in the midst of a trial. So this is how I want you to lead me. This is how I want you to move me. And you say, well, why do we even have trials anyway? Well, I love only Luke says it best. And I'll just turn back a couple of chapters. And this is Jesus is explaining the seed parable. And this is what he says. He said, some fell among thorns. One's on the rock. And those who hear the word are like those who receive it with joy, but they have no root. And they even believe for a while. Verse 13, there it is. They even believe for a while. But in time of testing, they abandon God. And it reveals where they are. So the, the trials come. I mean, just like in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Why, why were they hungry? I, I, you're hungry in the wilderness because I want to teach you something about your heart. I want you to see yourself because you're now going to respond to my exam. And here's the exam. You're going to go hungry. How are you going to respond? So when I look at this here, lead us not into temptation. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Hymn writer said it well. But what's interesting to me is how he ends this. And I love the way that this takes place. Um, he ends by giving really an application. The application on the one side is a contrast to a human friend, and on the other side it's a contrast to a human father. So really there, it's, it's a contrast. On, and not having the time to do that just to say this, and you read from verse 8 all the way down to verse number 10, you find out that there is a, a guy in the middle of the night that somebody comes and, and from his maybe family, maybe friendship world, and he, he's, you know, it's not like he can go to a store. <laughs> Not like he has a refrigerator to hold all this stuff, so he, so he, he needs some loaves, and so he goes to his friend next door and knocks on the, probably a small home. And everybody is asleep. And I think most revealing is verse number seven. Don't bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I, I cannot give up. I like what the NLT says here. I can't do this. I can't do this. He does end up doing it because of the shameless persistence of the one who is knocking on the outside. In verse 9 and 10, he contrasts that. Listen, this is a lot different. In fact, verse number 10 says, Everyone who asks receives and seeks and finds and knocks and it will be open. And all of a sudden, people are going to jump on that bandwagon and say, You know what? I think prosperity theology is a great thing. Really? Maybe you forgot about the tone of your prayer and the expectation of your prayer, and what about giving us our daily provision, and what about the issue of forgiveness, and what about the issue of temptation? You put all that in order, and now we begin to get the illustration. And then he says this in verse 13, or 11 13. What if a son asks of a fish from his father? Will his father give him a snake? Would he give him a a scorpion rather than an egg? Of course not. 
If you then are evil and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? This is an amazing, it's a brilliant, logical step for Christ and his disciples. He is going from you, the lesser, to the Father who is the greater. He is going from the lesser to the greater. And if the greater gives the absolute best possible gift, which is the Spirit, don't you think that all of the things underneath there are no problem for him to give you? I mean, if he gives you his spirit, if he, if he imparts himself, this is, this is not a theological statement. It is a deep expression of the heart of God. And you just fill this with the theology of the New Testament, and you know that Jesus and Spirit and Father, they are linked together, this intertrinitarian, amazing web, if you will, inextricably linked. So when you are asking for something, don't forget that... Getting the Spirit means you have all of God. It's a personal expression, a deep expression. I mean, if God gives you himself, don't you think he can do everything else? That's the point. So when I look at all this, brothers and sisters, I thought, well, how, how do you shape this? in a way that would help people walk away and say, okay, you know what? I know I need to pray. <laughs> okay, so, so what do I do? I'm so glad that's in your mind because I have one more slide for you. I want to give you a couple of suggestions. I want these suggestions to be an encouragement to you, a help to you. Um, I would say this. Let me get a couple of books. For $3.99, and I'm not selling it, but Crossway, you can order from Crossway a journal from every book in the New Testament. And this happens to be Romans, and so you open it up, and there is Romans 1 to 8 on one side, and then on the other side, you've got all this journaling to do. It's paper, so three bucks, four bucks, you can do this. So what you're going to do is visually go through the text. So the way, the way that you want your prayer life to be shaped is by the text of Scripture. So the way that you do this, guess what? You've got to be in the Scripture. So what you do is you take this here and you go through. This happens to be Romans, and this particular text struck me. You can't see it from back there, but it struck me in, in 16 and 17, and I'm looking at these four clauses. And as I look at these four clauses in Romans 1, 16a, 16b, 17a, 17b, I'm beginning to develop in my mind what it means for me to pray to my God because I've experienced the power of salvation. I'm enjoying the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so my mind begins to flow, and so as my mind flows, my pencil flows. So visually, you visually take a pencil, take a pen, whatever, and take one of these small just little helps in your life so that you can learn how to pray in a way that, that keeps God holy and keeps exactly his will at the forefront of your life. The next thing I would say to you is I'm amazed that people do not read on prayer. I will ask people this question. Uh, yet, have you read a book on prayer recently? What is it? 
So let me just encourage you. None of them are large and major, and any person, whether high schooler or college or single or married, busy life, they're, they're short chapters. Let, let me just give you a couple that's here. Here's one, uh, uh, R.A. Torrey, D.L. Moody's closest right-hand friend, How to Pray. If, if, if you haven't read this little book on how to pray, it's less than 100 pages. It takes you through concept after concept of what it means to be praying. Just listen, listen to these chapters that he, he has here. The importance of prayer, how to obey and pray, praying in the name of Christ, praying according to the will of God, how to pray in the spirit, how to pray with thanksgiving, hindrances to prayer, the need for prayer if revival is going to take place. Tremendous book. During the Civil War, there was a chaplain by the name of E.M. Bounds. He was actually captured by the other side, thrown into prison, got out of that. God changed his life. He wrote eight books on prayer. This one I just pulled out called Power Through Prayer. And when you open up and begin to read about that men of prayer are needed, our sufficiencies of God, tendencies that we must avoid, Examples of praying men. Grace from the heart rather than the head. That's the name of the chapter. Grace from the heart rather than the head. I mean, you're talking in the 1860s. You can get all, I, I just bought this past year all, all eight of these books. They're, they now sell them. And they, it's an amazing thing you can have in your library. But just to take... In a briefcase or put in your purse, you can put that in there so you're sitting somewhere so you can learn how to pray. Layman Strauss was a God used him greatly. And here's one that I think you ought to read. It's called Sense and Nonsense About Prayer. My mom's mom, Granny, this book was the best book for her. She said, she'd say, Danny, you got to read this if you want to know how to pray. Okay? If you don't know who Danny is, you come see me right afterwards. I'll tell you. Sense and nonsense of prayer. He opened up, he said, for almost half a century I have been listening to my own prayers and to the prayers of others, and I am convinced that many of our prayers contain more nonsense than sense. And then, this is indispensable, D.A. Carson's book called A Call to Spiritual Leadership Reformation. How taking all the prayers of Paul, and any person can read all the prayers of Paul, throughout his 13 letters and helping you understand why he prayed like he did and what that means. See, brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is that you are becoming intentional in prayer. Sorry about that. I can't see that far away. It's great because I can't see the clock. Okay, so. <laughs> plan, plan your daily time of prayer. Plan your daily time of prayer. Um, take a little three-ring note, three notebook and you have Monday through Saturday or Sunday. And when you open up Monday, you've got things that you're going to pray for, very specific requests. Brothers and sisters, people will come up to you and say, you know, would you please pray for me? And what do you say? Yeah, okay. And then do you do it? So you've got, you've got to have somewhere that you can write this down. So you have Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And for me on Saturday, I review the eight stipulations from George Mueller on how to effectively pray. So every Saturday morning, I've got that. I want to go over what George Mueller said and how he prayed and how God answered. So I'm going to review these eight things. And you may want to do it another way, but the idea is that you are intentional in your prayer life. And none of this takes money, but it will take your time. And then the last thing I would say, if you want a fresh 
to freshen up your prayer time, you've got to have music. I call them the Q documents. Paul Q is my illustration. I call them the Q documents because when Paul and I were talking about introducing new music, and actually it happened a little bit early with him with Matt Cleaver, some of you remember back that far, that we would put it on a five and a half by eight and a half sheet and you would have all of the song, the music, so you could take it home during the week and you could go over that song. And so we would do this. Like, and so I affectionately, those of you who love the synoptic problem, I affectionately call this the Q documents. And so the Q documents are something that when I went into Betty Olson's Bible, before she went home to be with the Lord, I opened up and you could hardly open up Betty Olson's Bible without one of those five and a half by eight and a half sheets cue documents coming out and there it is so you could she could sing I wonder what she's singing like now so she could sing so brothers and sisters this, I hope that the practical application of this will encourage you to think through you don't have to do great things you don't have to come to seminary you, you just need to think through how I can follow what Jesus wants me to do, and I can be taught, and I can pray. I'd like to pray with you and ask God's blessing and encouragement on you that as you move into the fall, Captain Brown, would you come, please? As you move into the, into the fall, that uh, you would be intentional with your prayer life. You'd be specific in your prayer life. If you have not attended on Wednesday night service of, on prayer, I would beg you to do this, to pray with the brothers and sisters. Pray. As I think about what God is doing in our fellowship, um, we can organize, but we're much better organizers than we are agonizers. So we just put a program in and it's, we got it. I don't think so. I don't think so. Very thankful for our board. Uh, Chaplain Brown, retired Navy captain, as a dear friend, a confidant, and uh, God is using him in a mighty way. And I asked him, in fact, he stayed over. Thank you for doing that traveling all over the place, got in early so that he could be at our board meeting yesterday, and I just asked him if he wouldn't mind praying, after which the pastor will come with some very important things. Captain, thank you. God bless you. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for this church and this seminary. We're thankful, Lord, for what you have done in raising both up and for the countless thousands of lives that have been impacted around the world through their ministry. Lord, we give glory to you for what you have done. As the seminary begins its new year, Lord, we ask your blessing upon it. We pray that you will continue to meet its financial needs. We pray for the staff and faculty that you will bind them together as one Give them a renewed passion for your word and a desire to teach it to their students. And Lord, may that passion not be taught, but may it be caught because of their lives. And Lord, we pray that you will continue to raise up students from this school who will impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to do a powerful work this year in Virginia Beach Theological Seminary and in this church, Colonial Baptist Church, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.